Welcome to Peak Tales, a conversation about chromatography. Now here's your host, John. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Peak Tales podcast. Believe it or not, this is season two of the podcast, and uh, we're going to kick it off with an interview with Mark Sinnott. We're titling this uh, Helium, No Laughing Matter, and uh, you'll understand why as we get into the episode. One quick program note as we start the second season of, of Peak Tales. We have a new promotion code that you can take advantage of as a Peak Tales listener in North America, but you're going to have to listen till the end. And uh, I know my dog's excited about that. You just heard her barking and you'll have to listen to the end to hear the promotion code. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Peak Tales podcast. This is John, and today I have Mark Sinnott with me. Uh, Mark has been on the podcast before, and uh, we titled this episode, Helium Shortage, No Laughing Matter. How are you, Mark? Doing okay, John. Thanks very much. How about yourself? Doing well, doing well. So, so why don't you give us some background around why we're talking about uh, the helium shortage and, and what that means to us as scientists? Yeah, no problem. So just for yeah, some background, you know, it's interesting, you know, you, you look at data and the like, and helium is the second most abundant element in the entire universe. So you could ask yourself, well, then why are we having a shortage? Well, obviously, the universe is pretty big, and there's not too much here on Earth, little tiny Earth. But um, regardless, um, one of the things that people are asking is why is there a shortage to begin with? And, and really, um, it's mainly because some of the existing sources have been depleted. Now, back in uh, World War One, and this is kind of interesting as I just learned this doing a little background for this particular um, podcast, um, there was a reserve created in Texas in World War One, um, and that reserve was plenty. Uh, it was plentiful, and it's slowly been depleted over time. Um, and there's been some pricing strategies I read about, which I won't get into, that caused it to kind of be depleted rather quickly. And so that reserve has gone down quite a bit. And then there's really only like 75% of all the helium in the world comes from three different places. One is that national reserve that's um, depleted. One is uh, Qatar. Uh, and the other is a, a Exxon facility in Wyoming. Um, but these reserves have really become depleted. So it's not that the demand has necessarily gone up, but the supply has gone down. And that, of course, will drive the prices um, higher. Um, I also found out it's interesting the way that you know we extract this from the earth. So it, it's found in natural gas reserves. Um, and basically, we do a distillation type of uh, procedure to try and extract it. But what I found was interesting was that you know, these reserves that have as little as 2% of helium in the natural gas is considered a really high content of helium. So it was just kind of an interesting, um, you know, side note for that. Um, so yeah, and the other thing is it really is a, a limited resource. So when you think about it, you know, helium gets released into the atmosphere, it eventually leaves the whole planet and just ends up in outer space. And so once it's gone, it's it's pretty much gone. Um, there are recovery systems and things like that that people put in place uh, for places where it's being used, uh, you know, in, in high quantity. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a limited resource and something that uh, we definitely need to be aware of. Hey, thanks for that background. Yeah, that, that's interesting information. And um, how does that impact us 
what industries, I should say, uh, are, are really the most impacted by this uh, helium shortage? Yeah, by far, probably the most the, the one that hits home the most is um, surprisingly not not balloons for parties. <laughs> um, turns out that the healthcare industry uh, is probably the largest one that really connects or would um, have an effect on you know basic folks, you and I. Um, and these MRI instruments, they they use a superconducting magnet that has to be cooled to liquid helium temperatures, or they don't work. And so I did a little bit of research on this as well. And these um, MRI systems will have. Uh, you know, reservoirs of like, I believe it's like 2000 gallons of liquid helium um, for their usage. And so it's really important if those uh, magnets are not kept cold, uh, basically they don't work. Um, and so all this imaging and all this great data we get from healthcare when you sprain your leg or, or what have you um, is really important. Um, so the other area that we see this being used, um, and a lot of us as chemists are probably familiar with, is with NMR, which is basically just a subset of MRI. Um, and this is just a spectroscopy technique um, that we use to characterize molecules and things like that. These also use these superconducting magnets, and need, so they need to be cooled with the uh, liquid, uh, liquid helium. So for analytical chemistry, we do have some alternatives. Like what, what can we do as, as chemists in, in, to basically replace the helium that we're using now? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, going back to the way those things are, those, uh, the helium is being used in other industries, there really isn't a replacement. I mean, there are no other um, uh, safe uh, gases that will reduce, that will get down to the temperatures needed for superconducting uh, magnets. But in the analytical chemistry world, we do have some options. So we can actually use alternative uh, um, gas sources for carrier gas in our systems. Um, one of the first things, though, before we would consider alternatives is something that's been around a very long time in our systems, arcing back to 6890 and all the current ones, and that's what's called the gas saver mode. And really all this is is it allows us to adjust the method for periods during periods of non-injection so that we're not wasting gas. So, for instance, if you're running a system that is using a particularly high split ratio, the flow that you're the amount of healing you're losing is the total flow through that inlet and that could be somewhere between four or five hundred milliliters a minute if the instrument's just sitting there idle and you're not really making an injection it's there's really no point in having that occur because the reason that split ratio is important uh is really only during the moment of injection when we first inject the sample and maybe for a couple of minutes thereafter um after that point there's no reason for that inlet to be at that high of a flow and so this is the easiest thing people can do right now if they're already, you know, if they, if they just want to look to see if they're running a split ratio method or a high split ratio method, make sure that you've got the gas saver turned on. Incidentally, around this is sometimes depending on how you've got your inlet set up, you might be employing gas saver and it might actually be increasing the flow after the quote unquote gas saver is turned on. It's not smart enough to know if it's higher or lower. It just basically sets it. So this would be almost a gas waster mode, uh, so to speak. So this is the kind of thing you'd want to check in your method to make sure that you're using it in the right way. And that's, you said, is uh, from 6890 onward, correct? So if you've got an that's, older 5890, you're not going to have that, that functionality. 
I, I don't think so. Maybe some of the later model 58.9s, but I really don't think so. It's maybe some of the EPC uh, versions of that of that system, but I, I'm not. I don't think that they would have that. Great. Yeah, and if people are running 58.90s, I mean, that is obsoleted technology. Um, it's time to kind of look at the latest uh, GCs that are that are available, and you know, there's a lot a lot more um, enhancements. You know, apart from gas saver, but um, so what what else can we do as chemists? Yeah. So aside from obviously that easy, the gas saver, um, we can certainly try alternative carrier gases altogether. So um, one of the most common is to switch from helium to hydrogen. Um, turns out if you look at European countries, they're largely using hydrogen as carrier gas way more than we are. Um, I think on, on our side, uh, we, we call it or we call it the Hindenburg effect, right? We think of hydrogen and we say, oh, the humanity, the you know, big, big dirigible that explodes. And so there's a big safety concern. And to be sure, we do need to be concerned about safety and we have safety guides and things like that. So it shouldn't be taken lightly. Um, however, there are safeguards that are put into the instrument that allow us to use hydrogen safely. Um, if there's any pressure uh, a drop or, or what have you, major leak in the inlet, it will shut down and things like that. Um, the other thing is that hydrogen is really diffuse, and that's part of what makes it a really good carrier gas, but it's also part of what makes it really hard to confine into a closed space. And so it's very difficult for it to reach these explosive levels. Again, we still use caution, still exercise caution. I'm not trying to say that it's something that we don't need to pay attention to, but it can be used safely. And also, if you think about it, most people are already using hydrogen on their FIDs at much higher flow rates than they are through the column. And so it's yeah. kind of already in your lab, most likely. So it's probably okay just to use it as, as carrier gas. Yes. And Ag Agilent's done a, a, a lot of work. And uh, actually, there are videos that you can see online. Things that, that we do to ensure that uh, the instrument is safe when using hydrogen as a carrier gas. And we, we've had this information out for years. So this is not relatively new. I uh, just, uh, it, I guess it seems here in North America, we just haven't adopted it uh, as uh, the carrier gas of, of choice, but uh, it, it definitely takes some, some looking at it. Are there other alternatives? Yeah, there are. But before we move away from the hydrogen, I do want to just point out a couple of things. Um, if you have hydrogen and you have it and you want to use it for a mass spectrometer, you can do that, but you do want to be careful about that. Um, first of all, you want to make sure your pressures are all okay because it uh, requires a lot less pressure to push hydrogen. And so you want to make sure that your pressure is okay for the particular flow. More importantly, though, um, with legacy systems that have been running helium for a very long time, if you switch to hydrogen, we have found that um, you will normally get a, kind of a, a sustained background signal. And we think that's because hydrogen is kind of reaching areas and, and kind of interacting or reacting with areas of the inlet or front end of the system, where in the helium environment, they were they were just fine sitting there. Um, and so we have found that sometimes you'll have some persistent background, it usually subsides. Um, the take home message here is, if you're thinking of making the switch, uh, and you have a whole bunch of instruments, take them one at a time. Just take one instrument, switch it over, make sure everything goes A-OK -okay, um, before you, you carry on uh, with any other instruments um, because that is a known issue, something to, to look out for. Um, so other alternatives, of course, is uh, that we can use actually nitrogen as a carrier. Now, if anybody's looked at Van Diepter curves, um, you can see very clearly that nitrogen is by far um, well, actually, ironically, nitrogen is, is one of the most efficient gases, but the problem is that 
the window is very narrow and the velocity at which that best efficiency occurs is very, very slow. So if you want to get the best efficiency for nitrogen, you have to run at really slow velocities. And this is the kind of thing that people frown upon, of course, because turnaround time and everything else is really, really important. Um, but you can switch to nitrogen. Um, what I normally recommend if you're going to do this is to just go ahead and start using nitrogen and don't change too much. Just give it a shot. Many analytical methods have more resolution than they need. So if you have some resolution to give away and your and your particular analysis isn't super high res where you've got things that are just barely resolved and you need needle sharp peaks and everything else, it might be a really good candidate to try nitrogen and you might be surprised at the results. So it's something you can certainly try as a starting point um, and can definitely be uh, something that would that would uh, be a good alternative um, to hydrogen or helium. And again, you might be surprised it may work out for your method. Great. I mean, there are other things people can do, right, to uh, reduce the overall uh, use of helium? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the things that we introduced in 7890, I believe it was 7890B, but it might have been earlier than that, um, is a helium conservation module. And basically what this is, so if you're in a situation where um, you, you really can't switch, right? You can't switch to nitrogen. You can't switch to hydrogen. You just know you have to use helium. You're using gas saver, but you still really want to save. What you can do is uh, employ this uh, helium conservation module. And really all it is is it, it allows for two, provides for two different inputs into the back of the GC. So you're going to uh, obviously uh, connect your helium line. That's your carrier gas like you would normally. But then you're also going to connect this source of nitrogen. And then what you do is essentially you tell the system to switch over to nitrogen during periods of non-use. Now, this wouldn't be between individual runs, but you could set it up to run this after a sequence. So you finish your sequence, say it finishes at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, everything's done. Now all you're doing is just sitting and wasting helium from midnight until people come in or eight or nine, eight or nine in the morning. What this will do is it will shut off the helium supply, turn on the nitrogen supply, and basically, now you're just using nitrogen for those periods of non-use. There is some literature out there um, for a particular method that the savings on this kind of a thing for a single instrument is can be somewhere around $1,000 or $1,200 a year. And obviously, it's very method dependent. So it could be more than that. It could be less than that. But you can certainly kind of do the math uh, when you start looking at these things and, just, and figure out how much downtime you actually have when the instrument actually isn't being used. And then you can start calculating, uh, you know, what kind of savings you would have. The nice thing is when you employ something like this, the recovery time is really good. Even with a, even with mass specs, it doesn't take but five or 10 minutes for the system to come back to normal after switching from a nitrogen back to helium and you're, for you to get back up and running. Um, so it's a really good, really good option and something you might want to consider looking into. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, this may be a simple question, but there's no harm or damage to columns if we're doing that switch back and forth, right? There, there's nothing going on there that we need to be concerned about, correct? That's correct. Yeah, absolutely not. And even mass spec systems. Now, you don't want to run mass nitrogen uh, for your an analysis, um, then that has to do more with ionization and things like that. But it doesn't hurt or harm anything. It's inert. It's an inert gas. Yes. Um, so there's no no harm whatsoever. All you're doing is really just saving saving on your healing usage. That's great, Mark. Uh, I, I appreciate you this uh, bringing this to us and to our attention. I know um, it, really for two reasons, right? Uh, as these reserves are being depleted, uh, that there's going to be a supply, a real supply 
problem, that of course raises the price. Uh, so maybe by looking at some of these things, um, some of the things we discussed today, you can save some money and and uh, also you know continue to to run these analyses before um, before the reserves are completely depleted. Absolutely. Yeah. No. So thanks for uh, joining us today. And uh, again, uh, people can go out on the Agilent website. We have a lot of information about uh, using hydrogen, using nitrogen uh, as replacements, uh, and also for the, um, you know, how to look at that helium conservation module if you don't already have that configured on your uh, Agilent GC. So thank you again, Mark, for joining us and sharing this important information. No problem at all, John. It was nice chatting with you. I hope everybody has a good day. Okay, listeners, thanks so much uh, for tuning in today as we kick off Season 2. You know, I I mentioned that we have a new promotion, and it's exclusive only to podcast listeners. So please uh, tell your friends and neighbors about the educational material that you're hearing on the Peak Tales podcast, and let me give you the special promo code that you can use to save some significant dollars uh, on your next order of Agilent uh, Consumables or uh, Chemistries. The promo code is 1599. That's 1599. And again, it's exclusive for you guys as podcast listeners. Thanks for listening to this episode of Peak Tales. For more information on what was discussed today, contact your local Agilent representative or go online to Agilent.com.